You're welcome to turn to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4, we'll be there in just a moment. You know, prayer is such a privilege that, um, and, and something that, that I can speak for myself, I quite often take for granted that God invites us uh, to come before the throne and to bring our burdens and our requests. You know, it's another privilege that, that people in our community would invite them into um, some of the most intimate and, and difficult things that are going on in their life. And so it's, it's a great privilege for us to be able to do what we did this morning and pray for people in our community. And uh, let's not forget that. Let's not dismiss that. Let's, let's recognize the reality of that. And I, I just want to thank you all for, uh, for participating in that and uh, for everybody who <clears throat> um, helped out on, on Friday and, and even... Andrew and Katie and the, the vision, just following the burden that God gave them. Uh, I think I'll be honest, and a couple others were honest. Like I, when, when Andrew told me, I think, this is what, I think this is what we should do, I was like, okay, sure. Sounds, sounds great, man. <laughs> Go with it. I, I don't know. You know, I, I'd never done anything like that, and so I was a skeptic, not a man of faith in that moment. But when I saw what was happening and, and people even praying with people out in front of the tent and people in the tent just praying over cards that had come in, I was incredibly moved. And, and, and so thank you, Purvises, thank you for, for following your, uh, your heart in that and leading us through that. Just fantastic. So uh, throughout this series through 2 Corinthians, we've repeatedly asked the question, uh, who are you discipling? Uh, who are the people in your life that you're regularly praying for? Uh, the people in your life that you are regularly uh, sharing scripture with, trying to encourage, trying to give some guidance. Who are the, the people in your life that you are sharing the good news of Jesus with? And I think there's an immediate temptation that we have to say, well, well I'm not sure that's my job. Or, or I'm not gifted in that area, therefore I'm exempt from that area. Or some, some might even go as far to say, Pastor, I'm pretty sure that's what we pay you for. Uh, that's what you're supposed to do, but that's not accurate either. M my job, the elder's job, according to Ephesians 4, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. To equip the body of Christ to be about the work of evangelism and discipleship, to equip you to be a discipler of others, to equip you to make disciples of Jesus, to equip you to equip others to know and be in obedience and live in obedience to all that Jesus has commanded us. And so parents, I think is a great example of what, what John's talking about. Parents, it's your responsibility uh, to disciple your kids, to, to, to teach them and train them up in the truths of the Word of God. And I'm grateful uh, for our parents and your dedication to that. Member of Meadowview Baptist Church, you're called to use your gifts to disciple other members of Meadowview Baptist Church. You're called to use those things that God's given you, your time, your resources, to involve yourselves in the lives of others. It's not accidental that God puts people together. And you and I are also told to take this message of Jesus to our neighbors, uh, to our co-workers, uh, to our friends, to the ends of the earth is what Scripture calls us to do. And 2 Corinthians is helping us to better understand the characteristics of a discipler, the characteristics of someone who has a heart of discipleship. Because in this letter, it's as if Paul pulls his heart out of his chest and just crams it on the page for us to see what the heart of a discipler 
truly is. He writes full of emotion. He writes with the goal of expressing his great love for Christ and his great love for the Corinthians. He writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that we today who are sitting here and opening up and reading might be edified, built up in our own efforts in discipleship. And so as we study this letter, we're learning from Paul and hopefully imitating Paul's heart of discipleship as he he told the Corinthians in his first letter, follow me as I follow Christ. And, And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to follow Paul, imitate Paul, as he is in fact imitating Christ with his love and compassion for others. And so today as we begin, I want to I encourage you to do this. I want to encourage you to consider in your mind right now, maybe they're, they're already there because of the questions we've asked or the prayers we pray. Who are the people that God has put in your life that you know I have a responsibility to be discipling them? I have a responsibility to be praying for this person. I have a responsibility to when I have opportunity, share truth with this person, to share the gospel of Christ with that person. Who's that person? I want to encourage you to take a moment. I want you to get a pen out if you got it, or you can pull your phone out. I want you to just type that name in. And there, there may be multiple names. So I'm just going to give you a moment right now. I want you to look at it. I want you to see it. I don't want you to just be able to dismiss it out of your mind. You can use your notes in front of you. Write down that name or those names that come to your mind. Father, you know all the names that are on our hearts and minds. And I pray now that you would burden us, you would better equip us to be faithful, to share truth with, to pray for, to disciple, evangelize these people that you've put in our lives. They're not there by accident. They're there by your providential plan. We've been placed in their life by your providential plan. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The last couple of weeks, we have worked through some incredibly complex passages. I feel like uh, an emotional Paul is, is a Paul who loves metaphors and analogies and logic and all sorts of crazy reasoning because he throws a lot at us in this particular letter. And just last week we worked through chapter three, verse seven, all the way through 18, where Paul is arguing that the Spirit's new covenant ministry is more glorious than Moses' law-based old covenant ministry. And he argues that one of those is about death and condemnation, and one of those is about life and forgiveness. And so, if you missed that, the opening words here, the opening line of chapter 4 won't mean as much to you, because Paul begins this way, therefore, having this ministry. What ministry, Paul? The ministry of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the new covenant, the ministry of life that he's been describing for us. And he says, having this ministry, this bold, zealous message that we have, this message that changes people's lives completely, that's the ministry that Paul's talking about. This message that transforms, this message that gives freedom, Paul says, 
In chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We're going to begin today by talking about the disciples' integrity, and I'll tell you now, as I begin to dig into this passage this last week, I realized very quickly we're not going to get through all six verses. And so we're going to get through the first two verses and talk about the integrity of a discipler here. Um, the, the, first, the first line of instruction and encouragement is this disciples, Paul says, they don't quit. Disciples don't give up. Paul says, because we have this, this bold message that, that boldly changes lives, we refuse to lose heart. We refuse to quit and give up. And Paul faced a lot of adversity, didn't he? I mean, even the Corinthians themselves gave him 10 lifetimes worth of grief. But, but beyond that, there's much more that he faced. Just jump down with me, verse 7. Let's look at where we're going to be eventually. Verse 7, he says, But we have this treasure, this, this ministry, this spirit in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Notice what he says in verse number 8. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And so death is at work in us, but life in you. Why is he being so morbid? Paul says it's death. We're giving ourselves the suffering, the affliction. Following Jesus is suffering death over and over and over again. We could, we don't have time to fast forward to chapters 11 and 12 where Paul starts to list out the affliction, the shipwrecks, the beatings, all of the things that he endured throughout his ministry. But his point is the message of Jesus, this ministry that's been given to me is greater and more important than any affliction that, or, or injury that I've ever endured. 
In fact, Paul sees the two things, the the affliction and the suffering and the ministry of the gospel as intertwined in in a Gordian knot that will never be untwisted. Paul recognizes, and he shares this elsewhere, that that following Jesus means suffering. And that's not unique with Paul. That's what Jesus told us. You follow me, you will suffer. The two are intertwined. Affliction goes with the bold message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in affliction, perspective matters a great deal, doesn't it? When we're having difficult times, perspective helps us to move through those difficult times. And here's Paul's perspective. He says, I have this ministry with all uh, this affliction, but I have it by the mercy of God. What does he mean by that? I have this ministry. This ministry comes with uh, much affliction by the mercy of God. Paul is saying this, he's saying, God was merciful to me to allow me to every day die this slow death serving Jesus and serving you Corinthians and serving the other churches rather than for me to go on about my life having never known Jesus. The mercy of God intervened in my life to take me off the Damascus road where I was heading to persecute and to put me on the redeemed road. It doesn't matter how much affliction he faces, he says it's by the mercy of God. Where we, my tendency, my heart of entitlement often says, I don't deserve this, God. Why do I have to go through this? This isn't fair, this isn't right. I've been faithful, I've been doing what you want me to do, and I'm suffering this way? Paul says, thank you for the mercy of allowing me to suffer for your sake. Perspective. Well, my mind is immediately drawn as I I consider this verse, two groups of people. Uh, Those who did quit, those who didn't quit. When you go to the pages of the New Testament, uh, in, in, in a few of the letters, Paul mentions this, this man named Demas. In, in the, the conclusions of these letters, people must have been around and say, hey, tell, tell those Galatians I said hi, or, or tell whoever I said hi. The companions are with Paul. And so in many of those situations, there was a man named Demas, and, and Demas, Demas says hi, or Demas is going to do this. But then there comes a letter where Paul says this, Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world. Demas quit. He talks about Hymenus, Alexander in 1 Timothy 1.20, just to mention a few that quit. But then there are those who like Paul. They didn't lose heart. I mean, I imagine in my mind, we don't know the end of their story. Timothy and Titus didn't lose heart. They continued to faithfully serve, but even as we turn into the pages of history and we move further beyond the early church, we run into people who didn't lose heart. I was just thinking of a handful of those that that we could think through for just a moment. I I don't know if you've ever heard of Lady Jane Grey, 16th century England, the nine-day queen. She was executed by her sister, Bloody Mary, And Lady Jane Grey gave her life because she refused to accept the doctrine and the teaching of the Catholic Church. 
She wanted all people to have a copy of God's word and have access to the truth of the gospel. And she willingly gave her life for it. John Bunyan, just another century later, 17th century England, was a pastor who they wanted to shut up. And so they shut him up in a prison cell and it wasn't a great prison cell. He spent much of his life there sick, hungry. But from that prison cell, he wouldn't be shut up. He wrote many books. One of those books is, I think, still one of the second best-selling books of all time in, in English literature, The Pilgrim's Progress. He remained faithful. Adonai Judson is one of my favorite missionaries from history, 19th century Burma. Adonai Judson lost three wives and several children because he wanted to share the gospel with people who had never heard of Christ. He had some seasons of great difficulty and depression, as you can imagine, but he didn't quit, and he continued to faithfully serve and waited years for his first convert. And, and, and the gospel really wouldn't take root and spread until well after his death, but he planted seeds faithfully. He didn't quit. He didn't lose heart. Amy Carmichael, 19th, 20th century missionary to... India, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, and the others who were a part of that group that went to Ecuador to share the gospel with the Aka Indians. The men were all killed, martyred. Elizabeth Elliot went back. She didn't lose heart, she went back. She walked into the village. She continued to share the gospel with people. And, and as the story is told, most of the people in that village put their trust in Christ. And there's been generational followers of Jesus there. She did not lose heart. Paul and these others are examples of faith. They're examples of, of endurance. The, these, these are the stories of true heroism. <laughs> these are the stories we, we need to teach our kids. We need to learn ourselves. If, if Hebrews 11 were to continue and talk about the faith and the way in which God used, these are the names that would continue to be written. They're examples of hope that the bold message of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection cannot be stopped. And so today, the Spirit encourages us, don't quit. Don't quit. Second piece of instruction that we find here is Paul offers... He says, don't manipulate others. He writes this. He says, we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or deceptiveness. We refuse to tamper or twist God's word. Paul, Paul has in mind the perverse and the manipulative practices of the false teachers that are in the church, these, these hucksters, as we've talked about them, who were using the Corinthians for their own selfish purposes. They're using God's sheep for their own personal benefit. What Paul critiques here is a, is a Machiavellian, a pragmatic approach to ministry and discipleship that believes the end justifies the means. It doesn't matter how you get there, what matters is the end product, an approach to ministry and discipleship that, that believes you, you must and you can do whatever you have to do in order to see people come to Christ. Pervasive in the evangelical church. And at first we may say, well, that, that sounds pretty good and that's, that's the problem is it, it does sound good. 
But here's what was going on in Corinth. We'll talk about this a little bit in a moment, but false teachers were allowing for sexual sin and fellowship with idols as long as people were still coming to the church house. See, the, their ways were cunning, Paul says. They're deceitful, they're crafty. Later, Paul will use this same word, this cunningness, this deceitfulness. Uh, in chapter 11, he's going to use it to describe the way the serpent deceived Eve. Used cunning. Well, let's consider our own modern context for a moment. How might others use deceitful means to manipulate others for their own selfish ends? How does that happen oftentimes within the confines of a church? Kent Hughes recounts this. He says, I once received an expensive brochure that featured eight separate pictures of a self-styled evangelist. It was designed to instill confidence in his power, and it featured photos of him praying by a waterfall. I thought that was funny. Praying with his hands on a pile of letters that were sent asking for prayer. Another photo showed him holding a baby, of course. Gotta have a baby in there. In another, he was shaking the hand of a poor man. But what really got my attention, Hughes writes, is, was the offer of a specially blessed handkerchief that had been dipped into the Jordan River. And that it, if you prayerfully applied this, it would bring healing. And the cost was only $25 or something like that. I remember when I was about 20 years old, I, I had tore my ACL. I'd gone a while, I think maybe nine months, <laughs> without it and did a lot of damage. And so I had to have a surgery when I was back home from school over that summer. And it was pretty extensive. And I got home and I was there on my mom and dad's couch. I did a lot of pain. Uh, my mom, uh, always afraid that I would become addicted to drugs, I refused to give me the good stuff and just was giving me Tylenol and ibuprofen. <laughs> I don't know what, 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 what about me she thought I would become an addict of something, but. But I remember being there, it was late at night, everybody was in bed, the TV was on, my parents were cheap and didn't get cable for us back then. Uh, so it was just playing what you could play. Oh, they've got cable now. Like, yeah, as soon as we left the house, they're like, let's, let's do this. Uh, so I was just watching something, just trying to distract my mind. And, and Robert Roberts came on, the son of Oral Roberts. And Oral Roberts was just north of us in Tulsa. And uh, he, was, he was doing his thing, and they had the close-up right on him. And he, he's talking, he's saying, I know that some of you out there, you're suffering. And you're suffering from you're suffering from financial difficulty. And he started just going through this, this list, this litany of things. And I'm just sitting there, throbbing knee. And he says, somebody out there has pain in their knee. And I, I was like, yes, I do. And, and I wanted to do everything I could to, I don't know if I was supposed to touch the TV like poltergeist or, or something. And just, I, I don't know what I was supposed to do in that moment. But I remember being sucked in immediately like, is this it, Lord? Is this what I'm supposed to do? And obviously, I'm going to say no, right? Faith, that is, that is what we know as the, the faith movement, the word of faith movement. And there's a lot of things that have gone on within that movement, still continue to go on in that movement. It's full of hucksters. It's full of people who want your money to support their ministry, their lifestyle, so they can benefit. And most of the time, they benefit off of poor. 
These are the guys who will go to other countries and they'll take, take people's money when they don't have anything but a, a chicken and a goat and they live on a dirt floor. It's disgusting. And so they're low-hanging fruit when I think about those who use cunning. But I, but I had a couple other thoughts. How can we be deceitful and manipulative? Emotional altar calls are just toying with the emotionally vulnerable people that are around us. Uh, now, the Spirit of God uses emotion. God gives us emotion, and it's good. But we also all know very well that emotions can be easily manipulated. That's what I appreciate about what John was even saying. I think that's part of what he's getting at. We, we, we want to draw lines in good places as parents because we don't want to emotionally manipulate our children. I remember uh, another story when I was a first-year student at, at Baptist Bible College, and I'm here with hundreds of other first-year students and many others who had already been there, and all of these students are here to train for ministry. They're going into pastoral ministry missions work. And it was just a couple weeks in, in a chapel service, they had an evangelist. And he got up there, and he made this statement. He said, if you're 99% if you're sure you're saved, then you're 100% lost. You, you guys might have heard that statement made before. But it wasn't just that statement. It was what he did before that statement. He, he told the story of this old pastor that he knew it had served faithfully in a church, and God had blessed his church for, for decades. And, but that old pastor realized as he was dying in his bed that he was never a genuine believer or follower of Jesus Christ. And so as, as this old pastor's dying and Jamie Regal's telling the story, he's talking about how the, the old pastor starts to scream, my legs are on fire! And the fires of hell were burning him as he's passing from this life to the next. And after that story, if you're 99% sure you're saved, you're 100% lost. As if there's no room for doubt in what it is to follow Jesus. I, I'm grateful that that was followed up by the next chapel by our dean of students, Brother Adams. And he took us to, to the story of John the Baptist who sent to Jesus, I just read this, and said, are you the one? John, John had been in prison. He was in, in a set of sur suffering circumstances and adversity and he's just like, I, I don't know, I just want to make sure. Emotionally playing. I've, I've been to churches and youth camps. You guys have been there too. They treated their, the response time, the invitation, whatever you call it, like a timeshare meeting. Right? I mean, they're just like, let's keep this thing going. We're going to do whatever we do to make the sale to land it. All for what? I, I don't know. I mean, I, it's personal fulfillment. It's numbers. I don't know. What about just the use of marketing. The churches have learned some, some slick tricks from Madison Avenue over the years to try to do what they can to, to draw the masses in, productions that draw people in. Hey, we want to have as orderly of a service as we can have, free from, from distraction because we want the focus to be on Jesus but, but a worship service is not a Hollywood production. It's, it's, not a, it's not a Broadway show. It's about Christ and focusing our attention on Him. I think another way we can do this is, is manipulating people with guilt rather than motivating them with grace. Grace. 
I mean, it's easy. It's easy to guilt people into doing things. Get passive aggressive. I, uh, I saw this uh, video of a, of a homily uh, in a Catholic church, I think somewhere in New York. Uh, somebody shared it online. It's just a section of the homily, and a homily is a prayer of, of confession and back and forth. For those of you who uh, have never been in a high church service, uh, but the, the caption that, that the guy had put on there was, when, you're, when, you're, when your pastor gets passive aggressive. And so, so in this homily, you know, the pastor or the priest would say, um, God, uh, forgive us for the times that, that we have uh, slandered and gossiped others. Christ have mercy. And then the congregation repeats, Christ have mercy. And he goes through these things. Well, then he says, for, for, for the times that that uh, we've, we've not been fa- uh, honest with our golf score. Uh, Christ have mercy, Christ have mercy. For the times that we, we cut in line for a COVID test and hoarded toilet paper, Christ have mercy. And, and he, he begins to go into all these weird details of life. Uh, his pet peeves, whatever they may be. Well, me and Faith thought that would be funny to maybe emulate that and put that in the, for the times we don't have enough people volunteered to help with this ministry, Christ have mercy. Yeah, we can do it. And we can manipulate you. But that's not the appropriate way to motivate. That's a law, dead-based way of motivating. We motivate by grace. And again, this was super convenient in Corinth because the evidence shows that they had false teachers who made allowances for temple prostitution. Fellowship with idols. Their distorted gospel message was, was you can have Jesus and sex with prostitutes. Or you can have Jesus and you don't have to give up going to all the social events at the pagan temples. You can do all of it. It's the manipulated message. In other places like Galatia, the distortion was this. You you can have Jesus, but you also need the laws, the rules, the traditions. Now this, this hits closer to home for me. In my experience, and many of you, knowing you, your experiences as well. I've heard, I've heard pastors and evangelists use the Bible to tell women that they have to wear dresses. Right? There's nothing wrong with wearing dresses. But I don't think the Bible makes that point. I've, I've heard it used to, to convince men they have to wear suits and ties. There is nothing wrong with suits and ties. I think they're awesome. I just can't fit in any of mine because I'm too fat. <laughs> <laughs> Get an amen for that one, yeah. I, I've seen the Bible used to legislate many things that aren't even mentioned in the Bible. Distorting God's word is easy and, and, and dangerous. Jim Jones, that hits some of your generation. Guess what he used? The Bible. David Koresh, the Branch Davidian compound. That's my generation. Guess what he used to use the Bible? Mormons use the Bible. Groups like Bethel out of California who have some crazy, wacky theology. Guess what they use? They use the Bible. I mean, think about this. For centuries, Christians used the Bible to justify slavery in our own country. 
You don't think it can be distorted and twisted and manipulated? We have to strive to rightly divide the word, that is to cut the meaning straight, to get the interpretation right and follow it with wisdom, appropriate application to people's lives based upon the truth that God is conveying. A good rule of thumb here, and again, this is a good rule of thumb, to be wary of approaching the Bible to try and find support for your agenda. It's a little bit backwards there. Trying to find support uh, for your own agenda. I skipped a whole page. I got to go back. I'm going to fit this back in. Sticky fingers today. The other tactic, and this is where I've kind of jumped to already, distorting God's word. You may have picked up on that. We moved beyond manipulation. This is twisting God's word for selfish purposes. Um, here's what this is. We, we twist God's word to promote our own agenda. Um, this, is, this is what theologians call uh, eisegesis. What we're doing right now is what's called exegesis. We are exegetically considering this Bible text, 2 Corinthians. We're, what are we doing? We're letting the truth out. We're opening it up, we're reading what's there, and we're letting it out. Exegesis, or eisegesis, is the opposite. It's reading one's own ideas into the text. It happens when we go to the Bible, we interpret a verse based upon our own pre preconceived ideas about God, our own preconceived ideas about Jesus, man, our own preconceived ideas about some political ideology, Rather than, than letting God's word be the authority and the source of what is true, we make ourselves the authority and the source of what is true and attempt to use God's word to justify then our own belief system. It's called proof texting. Here's what I believe. Now I'm going to find a text that proves it. It's a backwards approach. Thomas Jefferson had his own Bible. Anybody know that? created his own Bible. You can go on Amazon right now, you can order it. I wouldn't recommend it, but you can go order it. He loved literature, he loved ethics, but he didn't believe in the supernatural. So, so he didn't believe in the resurrection. Uh, Thomas Jefferson didn't believe in uh, the miracles of Jesus, and so, so he took a Bible and he removed all of the stuff that he didn't believe and he made his own Bible. And we, we might tend to scoff at that and be like, yeah, that's, wow. But in other ways, we do that every day. We ignore, we, we take out things that we don't really like. Many twist God's word in order to, to please the masses. They distort God's word uh, to, to please the culture, the world around us. Last Sunday, me and Josh were talking, and he brought up this verse from 2 Timothy, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but they'll have itching ears, and they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Who believes what I believe? Who are the teachers who will teach what I believe? 
The Supreme Court's recent decision regarding Roe v. Wade, Casey, it does provide us with a good example of this type of distortion because many Bible-believing Christians, they refuse to acknowledge in this moment the clear teaching of Scripture that there is life. There's life in the womb. And they find false teachers who distort or ignore the Bible so that they can support their own case. This doesn't just happen in that area. The same is true of homosexuality, transgenderism, sex outside of marriage. The scriptures are clear on these issues. But many accumulate teachers to suit their own passions. And here's what those false teachers say. See if you recognize this. Did God really say this? That's Genesis chapter 3. Are you sure that's what God really said? And they begin to take people manipulatively down a path. That's where I got off a while ago. That was convenient for Corinth, right? Oh, yeah, we want you to follow Jesus, but you can still do all this other stuff you want to do. Yeah, you can be a follower of Jesus, and you can still go to the temple prostitutes. You can be a follower of Jesus. You can still engage in the, the idol worship and everything that's going on in our culture. Flip it over again to Galatia. It's, it's not what you, what you can do, what you have to do, what you have to be involved in now. It's not just Jesus, but it's Jesus plus the rules that we set in front of you. They're taking God's word and they're, they're, they're manipulating people and pulling off their own agenda, distorting it. So back to this point, the good rule of thumb then is we've got to be wary of approaching the Bible to try to find support for our agenda. It's a dangerous approach. It, it can be done, but it's a dangerous approach. When we approach the Bible to try to support our agenda to justify our sin, right? Red flags should go off. Oh, I should have the right to act this way or do this thing, and I'm going to go to the Bible to prove that I can. To justify our political stance, to defend a doctrinal position rather than read the Bible in humility and let it determine your agenda. Let the Word of God be the lamp to your feet. Let the Word of God be the light to your path. And this is what Paul offers then in the next bit of encouragement. Finally, he says this, he encourages us, he's contrasting here, live with bold integrity. In opposition, live with bold integrity, a visible integrity, to commend yourself, that Paul says, we commend ourselves to you, is to show yourself to be something. Show yourself to be what you are. Paul writes, but by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul's saying again, we, we covered this a couple weeks ago, we have nothing to hide. Our life, our ministry, our message, it is an open book. There's nothing going on behind the curtain. There's no flashy marketing or manipulation or distortion. Nobody pulling the levers. Our message is the open proclamation of truth. Paul recognized his job as that, to proclaim the truth to those hardened and blinded, those who had the veil over 
their faces. Paul's job was not to soften their hearts. His job was not to restore their sight. His job was to openly, boldly, zealously share the gospel message. One commentator, Guthrie, writes this. He says, yet, I love this, yet it is through the public proclamation of truth that unbelievers become believers. This is what God uses. This is what the Spirit uses. But it is the living Spirit who uses the truth to remove the hardened heart and to replace it with a heart of flesh. It's the living Spirit who transforms men and women. The work of salvation can only be accomplished by Him. I was listening to a sermon in, in preparation for this, just listening to somebody else talk through this text, and, and, and he shared a story um, of a woman that he had, he had heard her testimony uh, of her conversion uh, when, when she came to Christ. And she, said, she, she told the story that she was on the beach and, and there were these three or four muscle-headed guys walking down the beach. And her eye just kind of caught him because, you know, muscle-headed guys can look pretty weird sometimes. And, and as they walked by, one of them said, praise Jesus. And her testimony was in that moment. She said, yes. Praise Jesus. Now, I have no doubt there were seeds that had been planted in her life. She had heard the message, but it was that moment in time that the lights came on, the veil was lifted. Think of all those seeds that had been planted in her life. And even that one final, <laughs> just word of praise to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that's just as true for us. Our job is not to transform people, but to boldly proclaim the truth with integrity, being open, being honest. When we begin to believe that it is our job, when, when I begin to believe it is my responsibility to do the converting, the veil-removing work, we will start using cunning practices and distorting God's word so that we can see results. Here's what... Uh, Jesus said to the Pharisees, Woe to you, teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea with a, to, to win a single convert. And when he becomes a convert, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. You make matters worse. See, when a person is converted with manipulative practices, they aren't converted to Jesus. They're converted to a distortion of Jesus. The old adage that, that, that you hear in pastoral circles is, is you keep them with what you win them with. We want to win people to Jesus. We don't want to win people to a ministry. We don't want to win people to a musical style to our preference, uh, to a political ideology. We want to win people to Jesus and keep them with Jesus. Though the text continues, Paul is going to address the disciples' dilemma, which you see in the next couple verses, that there is a veil. The God of this world has blinded the eyes. There's hope in verses 5 and 6, both of which we'll get to next week. Instruction 1 and 2 is enough. But I just want to remind you of a couple things before we pray. Those of you who have family and you have friends who are hardened and the veil is evident.
their heart like granite. Their blindness seems uncurable. Don't lose heart. Don't quit. Continue to pray. George Mueller was an amazing figure from the history of the church. He wasn't a pastor. He was a guy who saw a need in his community and was moved with compassion. He saw a bunch of kids who didn't have a home and they were starving and they were being abused in the labor force in England. And so he decided to start an orphanage. And if you've never read his story, I would encourage you to do so because it is amazing testament to the faithfulness of God and, and the faithfulness of a man who just prayed his way through life. But in his journals, which are, which are powerful, short, you can buy those on Amazon, and I would recommend that. He writes this, in November 1844, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. He writes, I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether sick or in health, on the land, on the sea, whatever the pressures of my engagements might be. 18 months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. I thanked God and I prayed on for the others. Five years elapsed and then the second was converted. And I thanked God for the second and I prayed on for the other three. Day by day, I continued to pray for them and six years passed before the third was converted. And I thanked God for the three and I went on praying for the other two. And these two remained unconverted. 36 years later, he wrote that the other two, sons of one of the Mueller's friends, were still not converted. And he wrote, but I hope in God, and I pray on, and I look for the answer. They're not converted yet, but they will be. And in 1897, 52 years after he began to pray daily without interruption for these two men, they were finally converted. But after Mueller had died. Mueller understood what Luke meant when he introduced the parable to Jesus, told on prayer and said, Jesus told the disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Don't lose heart. Second area, continue to lovingly share the truth. The bold message. We have to understand and be convinced that the gospel message of Jesus is what changes lives. We have to be convinced of that before we'll share that. Are you convinced of this? When we're convinced, we will boldly, we will zealously and openly share it. Believing that the Spirit's at work in the hearts of the people. Believing this is the medicine that needs to be applied to their life. Believing this is the hope that the hopeless need. This is the joy that the depressed need. This is the peace offered to the anxious. This is the message. Friends, Paul gives us a glimpse this morning of the heart of discipleship. I'm going to ask you to bow with me for a moment just of response. Give us an opportunity to pray. I've got a, I've got a 
couple of questions here I want you to think through as, as we pray. Who are you going to pray for right now? Whose name did you write down? Who are you going to commit to pray for this week? Maybe even for the next 52 years. What will you do this week to position yourself to zealously share the truth, to evangelize discipleship with those who need hope, direction, those who are in need of a Savior? Let's spend some time praying over those things right now, making whatever commitment we need to make to Christ. Spirit, we need your help to continue on in steadfastness, to not lose heart. Help us to pray bold prayers. Help us to continue in those bold prayers. And help us to, to boldly share the message that changes lives. What a privilege it is to be a part of what you're doing. Thank you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. One other quick challenge. Uh, Jason's going to come. Uh, he's going to close us out. I want you to think this week, and, and this would be a good conversation, maybe over lunch, uh, maybe this week with, with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Where are you possibly reading your own ideology into the Bible rather than letting the Bible speak to you? Are there areas of your life, personally, socially, politically, theologically, that you need to, in humility, surrender yourself to God's Word um, and get that corrected? Are, are you guilty of using cunning tactics to manipulate people towards Christ rather than boldly proclaiming the truth of Jesus? Just a couple things I want you to think about and consider this week as well.